friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. At the beginning of January, Representative Kevin McCarthy of California became the Speaker of the House of Representatives after 15 rounds of voting. It was the first time a speaker wasn't elected in the first ballot since 1923. In this episode, we are joined by two great scholars, Matthew Green and Josh Chavitz, who can tell us about the role and the history of this important constitutional office. Matthew Green is professor and chair of the politics department at Catholic University. He's the author of The Speaker of the House, A Study of Leadership. His most recent book is Newt Gingrich, The Rise and Fall of a Party Entrepreneur. Matthew, thank you so much for joining and welcome to We the People. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. And Josh Chaffetz is professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. He is the author of Congress's Constitution, Legislative Authority, and the Separation of Powers. Josh, thank you so much for joining and welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back. The Constitution in Article 1, Section 2 says, the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. Matthew Green, what did the founders intend the speaker to do in those spare words? It's an excellent question because there's very little in the Constitution other than what you just said. Um, So what we uh, know the founders intended, we have to glean from other writings that they've done and um, other sources of inspiration that they had in drafting the Constitution and particularly Article One. Um, The founders certainly looked to the House of Commons to see how it operated and looked at the Speaker of the House there, as well as state legislatures or colonial legislatures um, at the time of the founding. Um, What we can glean from that is that the founders most likely intended the Speaker to serve as a referee to make sure that the House operated um, according to the rules and that the rules were being followed. Um, But part of that, too, was an understanding that uh, fundamental to legislative politics is deliberation. And so there needed to be somebody who was in charge of not just making sure the rules were followed, but that they were followed such that lawmakers could deliberate, um, come up with solutions to problems and legislate accordingly. Thank you so much for that. Josh Chaffetz, in your book about Congress's constitution, you talk about how the framers intended for Congress, both the individual houses and the individual members, to make use of constitutional powers in addition to the power to pass laws. And you note a series of hard powers like the power of the purse and the personnel power and contempt of Congress and soft powers like freedom of speech, internal discipline, and uh, cameral rules. What was the role of the speaker, as originally understood, in exercising those hard and soft powers? The role of the speaker, uh, in some sense, goes to this last idea that you mentioned, this idea of cameral rulemaking and cameral organization. It was um, sort of central uh, to the constitutional scheme that each House of Congress had the ability to determine the way it would operate internally and to determine that without any kind of uh, influence from outside actors. And this comes out of uh, the the sort of parliamentary history of the speaker, where for a long time the speaker had been understood to have dual loyalties. The speaker had to be uh, acceptable to the crown um, uh, for much of English uh, history. And that led to significant conflicts between parliament and especially the Stuart crown in the 17th century. We see similar conflicts playing out in the American colonial legislature 
legislatures in the 18th century, where there were repeated fights uh, between uh, colonial legislatures that had been elected in the colonies on the one hand and uh, royally appointed governors on the other hand as to who had the authority to to appoint the speaker uh, of the legislature. Um, in some cases, like in, in Georgia in the um, 1770s, uh, the, the legislature kept electing the same guy over and over again, and the, the governor kept rejecting him over and over again. And it led to this sort of two-year standoff in Georgia in which almost no legislative business was transacted. So that's the sort of background that the Constitution is written against, this idea that um, coming out of those conflicts, we want to make sure that sort of no one else has the authority to interfere in the operations of the House of Representatives. And that's why it's so clearly stated that the House is the one that chooses its own speaker, right? Um, it, it goes hand in hand with the ability of the House to conduct its own business uh, free from outside influence, which then is, is one of the things that allows it to assert itself. Um, uh, and we see that beginning to happen uh, sort of uh, relatively early in the House Speaker, uh, the, the the history of the House, especially uh, with the speakership of of Henry Clay in the um, very beginning of the second decade of the nineteenth century. Thank you so much for that, and so interesting that you both mentioned the model of the Speaker of the House of Commons, uh, but the determination of the founders to create an independent office that would empower Congress to exercise its independent authorities. Well, before we get to Henry Clay, who, as you say, Josh Chaffetz, is, is the best known of the early 19th century speakers, let's talk about his predecessors. We have speakers like Frederick Muhlenberg, Jonathan Trumbull, Jonathan Dayton, Theodore Sedgwick, Nathaniel Macon, and Joseph Varnum. Uh, I, I hadn't heard of most of those gentlemen before. Uh, Matthew Green, tell us about those early speakers and how they exercise their constitutional role. So not much attention is usually given to these early speakers, um, partly because they are overshadowed by Henry Clay and his contributions. Uh, Also partly because uh, many of these speakers took seriously their parliamentary responsibilities and um, uh, made a point of acting in a neutral fashion uh, when they governed over the House of Representatives, which doesn't get you as much attention as, say, somebody who's acting in a decisive partisan fashion. Having said that, though, one of the things that's not so well known about these speakers is that they weren't entirely 100% neutral. And some of them were doing small things that were moving the speakership as an institution towards a more partisan uh, role. So, for example, folks like Speaker mentioned Joseph Varnum, for instance. You know, he uh, he was uh, taking some certain steps in terms of committee assignments to help uh, partisans uh, influence policy outcomes. And even the first speaker, uh, Frederick Muhlenberg, uh, very much a, a nonpartisan speaker, a parliamentary speaker, but he also uh, was very much interested in uh, state interests. He's from Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania. Uh, wanted to be sure that they had some uh, some influence in uh, in this new government, and so they they pushed at least covertly to to make sure to to get their choice or to get someone from their state to be to be speaker. And so even from the get go, you could see that speakers were kind of torn between this parliamentary role that they um, they were expected to fulfill, but also their own uh, personal uh, policy interests and the interests of their supporters and trying to, to help them succeed in the House of Representatives. Josh Chaffetz, tell us about these early speakers before uh, Henry Clay, and were there any significant constitutional clashes between Congress and the president during this period or not? Sure. So one of the, I mean, important, I think, background for this, right, is that um, uh, is that this is the, the moment at which you get the sort of uh, rise of proto-party uh, uh, politics uh, at the national level and then actual party politics at the national level. So when Congress um, uh, first convenes in, in 1789, 
um, uh, you know, th there's still this idea that maybe the United States won't develop uh, a political party system, right? That there will be disagreements in the legislature and debates in the legislature, but that the idea that the sort of idea that the things might harden into competition between major parties, um, there's still a sense that that might be able to be resisted. At the same time, that uh, 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 sort of uh, one faction uh, led by by uh, Jefferson and Madison, and another faction led by by Alexander Hamilton, are sort of uh, beginning to 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 lay the groundwork for. This this kind of competition. What that means is that in the earliest Congress, so in the first Congress, um, the vast majority of the legislation uh, that the first Congress passes is in fact written by cabinet officers. And in fact, a huge percent of it is written by, by Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, um, uh, even things that fall outside of Treasury's uh, sort of ambit. Uh, a lot of that legislation is written by Hamilton. Um, and in part, that's because the House at that point and, uh, and the Senate as well, don't really have the institutional infrastructure uh, to uh, sort of operate as a powerful legislature. So, you know, one thing that the early speakers uh, are sort of groping their way towards, something that the House of Commons had earlier groped its way towards, uh, is a committee structure, a structure that will allow um, uh, expertise to develop in the legislature, that will allow members to sort of focus on one piece of business. Um, but for the early years, the, 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 the committees in the House are um, almost entirely select committees. They're not standing committees. That is to say, um, there'll be a particular problem that arises and a sort of ad hoc committee will be appointed to, to look into that committee um, uh, until the until the um, uh, until uh, about 1810. The committees didn't have the jurisdiction to report out uh, bills unless they were specifically given that on a sort of ad hoc basis. They could issue reports, but they couldn't uh, report out a bill. And so um, a big part of what these early uh, speakers are trying to, to think about is how to institutionalize legislative power, right? It sort of sits in between this idea of sort of neutral arbiter on the one hand and partisan actor on the other is, is sort of how do we empower our institution? And we can see the early speakers uh, sort of groping towards that um, but as I suggested a minute ago, it's it's really, uh, I think, Clay coming into office in 1810 who uh, begins to develop what we think of as the sort of uh, more modern answers to those questions. Well, let's turn then to Henry Clay. He was the first dynamic national political figure to become speaker. He served three terms in the House. Matthew Green, tell us about the constitutional legacy of Henry Clay. Well, his legacy is substantial, uh, obviously not just as speaker of the House, but what's really impressive about Clay is that he's elected speaker. Um, he is a freshman member, as I recall. So he, he doesn't really have a history there in the House. And he builds upon what some of his predecessors have been trying to do uh, in the House and institutionalize the legislative process internally. So for example, um, the establishment of the standing committee system. So moving from this ad hoc uh, select committee process where committees are being created on a case-by-case -case basis to committees that exist from one Congress to another, um, that establishes continuity. It also uh, <clears throat> is a step towards professionalization. So you join Congress and you become a, a member of a committee and you may or may not stay, but the idea is that it's there from one Congress to the next. Um, and that is a very, very important institutional development that um, Clay uh, initiated or built upon, really pushed forward as speaker. Um, but he also was willing to um, move away from the role of the speaker as a strict parliamentarian towards a more 
uh, political partisan actor. Um, so he is known for his speeches that he's giving on the floor, which is not against the rules of the House. But if you're a neutral parliamentarian, you shouldn't be advocating for one position or another. Clay's not afraid to do that. Um, a lot of his influence is informal. So um, it was his personality, his ability to persuade, um, his ability to lead that made him a really remarkable figure uh, as Speaker of the House of Representatives. Josh Chavitz, tell us about Henry Clay. He takes office on November 4th, 1811. He's known as the Great Compromiser. Uh, he originated the term, I recently learned, self-made men, which both Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass picked up on. Uh, and yet, as Matthew Green just said, he's he's the first uh, partisan actor as speaker too. What was Clay's constitutional legacy? So, I, yeah, I, I agree with with you know everything that that, that Matt just said. Um, uh, you know, the the um, we 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 tend to remember Clay more for his time in the Senate than for his time in the House. But as you know, you know he becomes Speaker of the House on his first day in the House of Representatives, um, uh, and really becomes this this sort of tremendously important uh, speaker, sort of. Two uh, two things that I would add to what Matt said. One is that um, you know this is in the context of an incredibly uh, weak presidency, right? So this is in the context of uh, the Madison presidency. Um, uh, you know, Federalist uh, the Federalist Party has largely at this point disappeared from the national scene, um, and we're into what would come to be termed the era of good feelings, right? The era in which the Democratic Republicans are sort of briefly the only party uh, in the game. But that doesn't mean that 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 uh, Madison is a strong president. In fact, um, uh, Madison. Uh, has a lot of trouble getting nominees confirmed in the Senate. He has a lot of trouble getting legislation passed uh, in the House. And in particular, um, Clay comes into office at the head of a faction of the Democratic Republicans that are known as the War Hawks. And this is the faction that is pressing for a more aggressive posture uh, towards Britain. They're pressing for what would eventually become uh, the, the, the War of 1812. Um, uh, so one way to think about it is they see it coming. Another way to think about it is that they're trying to pressure the United States into it. Um, but essentially, sort of, he comes into office uh, with a, although nominally a member of the same party as, as the president, with a very different uh, um, idea about what national policy should be than the president. And that, I think, is the context in which uh, he sets about empowering the institutions of the House, right? So he sets up, uh, you know, as Matt said, he, he creates the standing committee system. There had been a few standing committees before this, but he basically takes a system that was dominated by select committees and turns it into a system that's dominated by standing committees. He's also, um, uh, you know, as Matt said, the, the, the first overtly partisan speaker. Um, and part of what that means is he starts the practice of every committee having a majority that re that uh, is sort of reflects who controls the majority of the House as a body. Up to that point, um, uh, there could be committees where the majority of the committee looks very different than the majority of the chamber, right? So he does all of that because he comes into office at the head of this significant faction of Warhawks, and he wants to use uh, his, his chamber's power uh, to, to sort of push forward their goals, right? Um, so that's the, the sort of, I think, political context in which... Um, in which he winds up uh, uh, sort of taking these chamber-empowering positions. Well, between Clay's uh, last speakership, um, which ends in 1825, and 1856, which is the longest and most contested battle over the speakership in American history, uh, the election lasted for 133 ballots over nearly two months, uh, we have a bunch of speakers. The, the only one I heard of was James Polk, who became... Uh, president, of course, 
Matthew Green, tell us about uh, the lead up to 1856 and what happened in 1856 as the battle over slavery began to lead to high contestation in the House. Sure. So the speakers that followed Clay, it's hard to generalize about all of them. Uh, The fact that they also aren't very well known, like speakers before Clay, I think speaks to the, um, you know, the contributions that, that Clay made to American politics and that he was a tough act to follow. There's two really important developments in the lead up to that uh, two-month-long battle for Speaker in 1856. Um, the first is a change in the way that speakers are chosen. So prior to 1839, speakers were elected by secret ballot. Uh, and the problem was that as you see parties developing and becoming more important in American politics, um, the election for speaker, but also for other offices like the uh, clerk and the printer, uh, really matter to parties. And the problem is not everyone in a party is being loyal to the the party itself in these elections. And so to make sure that lawmakers are voting for the nominee of the party uh, in 1839, the House changes the rules so that the vote is held by a, a, a voice vote, just like it is today. Um, with, but it's a roll call vote, vote. So every member says how they're going to vote alphabetically. Um, so this shows, uh, a, this is an important, uh, you know, this is an important development. And it's also a sign that parties really matter now in Congress and they want these, these, these leadership positions are important. Um, But at the same time, and shortly thereafter, you've got the rise of uh, sectionalism and divisions in the country around the issue of slavery. Um, And uh, what, as one of the consequences of that is that um, even though the, is that these divisions are splitting the parties internally. So it's actually um, now this open uh, voting process actually um, produces a new problem with discipline, which is that lawmakers vote for speaker can be seen by their constituents. And if a candidate is seen as, say, pro-slavery and their party endorses them, but the member's constituency is anti-slavery, then they're really caught in a bind and made to fire their vote because they don't want to make their constituents mad, um, which is basically the buildup to um, it's not the only highly contested election, but this 1856 election for speaker, uh, which takes place over a, a two-month period. And um, to summarize the history briefly, um, you've got the you've got a real scrambling of the party system. You've got um, basically the the end of the Whig Party. You've got the rise of this new Republican Party, a rise of a, a nativist know-nothing party, and um, we've got multiple people being nominated for speaker, and this tremendous battle over who the nominee should be. Josh Chaffetz, we've just learned that the rise of the fight over slavery and the increased transparency of Congress led to this great battle in 1856. There were were other contested speakerships over slavery around that time in 1849 and 1859. Tell us more about the battle of 1856 and, and what kind of speakership emerged from it. Sure. So there's a way in which um, uh, we can sort of tie this story back to Henry Clay as well. So Henry Clay, um, uh, uh, you know, um, becomes one of the the sort of leading members, one of the founding members of the Whig Party, this party that arises in opposition uh, to Andrew Jackson's presidency, um, uh, and that um, uh, you know takes its name from the the the, the Whig Party in Britain, which was the party that. Uh, traditionally opposed strong monarchical power, right? And so this idea that, um, uh, you know, it's, it's founded on this idea that Jackson has sort of become a quasi-monarch, King Andrew I, as he was uh, sometimes caricatured in the press. And Clay becomes, um, uh, you know, this, this is when he's in the Senate, becomes the sort of leader uh, of the Whig Party. Um, 
But the Whig Party, uh, in part because it was founded as an anti-Jackson party, never had a clear internal um, uh, sort of ideology. It, 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 it's sort of remo- remarkably uh, fractious over time. Um, and it really falls apart in the 1850s over this issue of slavery. It has a pro-slavery wing and an anti-slavery wing. Um, and the Whig Party disintegrates. And the Democratic Party uh, sort of manages to, to sort of continue uh, going forward. And that's the context in which we get the 1856 speakership uh, contest, which is you have um, uh, this sort of loose coalition of anti-slavery parties. The the Republican Party has just sort of come on the scene, right? So 1856 is the first election in which the Republicans actually run a presidential candidate, uh, John C. Fremont. Um, but there are a bunch of other sort of smaller parties, including the Know Nothing Party, or as they call themselves, the American Party. Um, uh, and that's the party that um, that Nathaniel Banks identifies with. And essentially what he has to do over the course of these 133 elections um, uh, in the House of Representatives that year is try to sort of cobble together a coalition, right? So um, uh, Matt talked about how... Um, you know, the speakership becomes over the over the course of the 19th century a, a, a party affair. Um, uh, and that usually means that it goes off relatively without a hitch, because if you have two dominant parties, whoever has the majority is, is going to sort of uh, manage to put their speaker in place. But when you have this this moment in the 1850s of sort of party crumbling on, on uh, or, or one of the two major parties crumbling, um, uh, it becomes much harder to put together that coalition. And the, the way that plays out is in these 133 ballots before the, the Know Nothing, Nathaniel Banks is finally elected speaker. Well, we're now into the Civil War. We have names like uh, Schuyler Colfax. And after, in the late 19th century, I see James G. Blaine. And we the people know the jingle, Blaine, Blaine, James G. Blaine, the congenital liar from the state of Maine. Uh, And then other uh, speakers who I uh, hadn't heard of before, leading up to folks like uh, Thomas Reed in uh, 1889. Uh, Matthew Green, Take us through uh, this period from the Civil War through the late 19th century. Certainly. So, first of all, the most important thing I'd say to note is that this idea of the speaker as a partisan officer um, continues throughout this period, um, and party becomes uh, continues to be a very important um, a factor in Congress and an important and being a partisan actor is very important for speakers. So, uh, folks that you mentioned, like Blaine, for example, are very loyal to their party and they're working hard to help their party achieve uh, its, their, their legislative goals. One of the challenges that speakers are facing in the late 19th century is uh, how the House operates, and in particular, um, the kind of loose approach to legislating, or that's the right way of putting it, the, the, the kind of the rules of the House and the way in which it gives individual members significant power. Um, and uh, basically what this means is that uh, lawmakers, particularly lawmakers in the minority party, uh, really lawmakers in, law- in the minority party, are able to filibuster. Uh, they don't use that term, but in effect slow things down. Uh, there's certain rules and practices in the House that individual lawmakers in the minority are taking advantage of. Um, so, for example, you have the famous disappearing quorum where lawmakers choose not to be called when the presiding officer, the speaker, calls out their name. And the the practice in the House at the time was, it's optional whether you wish to be counted as present. But the Constitution makes clear that the House cannot operate without a quorum. So lawmakers can simply refuse to be counted, 
And there's a lot of absences at the time as well. A lot of lawmakers are not in Washington. They're not in, their, they're not in Congress when their name's being called. And so you have a lack of a quorum. And as this technique and other tactics are being used with increasing frequency, um, the House is having a harder and harder time legislating. And um, it really reaches a, a, a kind of a, a final kind of point in uh, 1890 um, when um, the Speaker of the House, uh, Thomas Brackett Reed, who's a Republican, um, decides, and, and his party had used these tactics themselves, but it was really Democrats who were uh, using them very effectively. Uh, Reed decides that he is going to simply start counting members whether in, when they're in the chair, in the, in the chamber, whether they want to be counted or not. Um, and um, the, there's a huge amount of protests. The Democrats are absolutely furious. They say this is unconstitutional. Um, but Reed stands firm and his party stands firm. And eventually what you have uh, is a rewriting of the rules of the House to get rid of this um, ability to delay the legislative process and other tactics that, that minority party members are using as well. There's all kinds of things that Reed is uh, cracking down on. And what that results in is not only a more efficient House, but a a further cementing of this partisan role of the speaker, that the speaker is saying, my job is to make this institution work, but it's to make it work for the governing party, for the majority party. And if need be, we'll change the rules to make that happen. So interesting. Thank you so much for that history, Josh Chaffetz. It sounds like there's important constitutional change going on in the period from the Civil War through the late 19th century. Tell us more about it. Absolutely. And, and Thomas Brackett Reed is really the, the person to, to focus on. Um, so, you know, in, in the 1880s, even before he's speaker, um, he's a member of the Rules Committee and is, to a large extent, responsible for turning the Rules Committee into what it has become uh, today. Uh, and that, in turn, is responsible for turning the House of Representatives into what it's become today, um, which is to say that the Rules Committee uh, basically serves as the gatekeeper to the House floor, that every piece of legislative business basically that comes to the floor of the House of Representatives first makes a detour through the House Rules Committee, and they have this agenda-setting uh, function, um, and, and Reed is really largely responsible uh, for that, even in the time before he becomes Speaker, and that's in the 1880s. And then in the 1890s, we get the Reed Rules, these, these reforms that Matt talked about um, that are uh, basically meant to take the House, which, by the way, is something I've talked about on a, a previous We the People podcast. But in the you know for most of the 19th century, the House of Representatives was the the obstructionist House, right? Filibustering uh, largely took place in the House and not the Senate, um, and it's Reed who really changes that. It's Reed who. Um, who manages to make the House function uh, sort of much more effectively and, as Matt said, sort of take away these opportunities uh, for obstructionist behavior. In fact, when um, uh, when he's issuing the ruling from the chair um, uh, that, that ends the disappearing quorum that Matt was talking about, he, his, his ruling sort of sounds in uh, general parliamentary law. What he says from the chair is, um, the object of a parliamentary body is action and not stoppage of action. Hence, if any member or set of members undertakes to oppose the orderly progress of business, even by the use of ordinarily recognized parliamentary motions, it is the right of the majority to refuse to have those motions entertained and to cause the public business to proceed. So he really is putting forward this idea of you know, the, the, the majority in the House needs to be able to get its agenda through, right? And that's, that's partisan, but that's also sort of changing the character uh, of the House from one where obstruction is the norm uh, to one where sort of the orderly processing of the majority's business is the norm. So interesting to learn about Reed and the transformation of the House. Uh, I think our next big speaker is Joseph Gurney Cannon, who served at the beginning of the 19th century 
Matthew Green tell us about him and his contribution? Joe Cannon. So many historians sort of, um, when they're breaking down the history of Congress into eras, they'll often have an era that starts with Thomas Brackett Reed and ends with Joe Cannon. And the reason for that is, uh, you know, as Josh was talking about, Reed brought about this tremendous change in, in the rules and this rethinking of the role of the speaker um, and for the House to be a source of action. Um, and it's a source of action for the governing party, the majority party. The famous quote that's attributed to Reed is that the job of the majority is to govern and the job of the minority is to collect their pay, uh, something to that effect, uh, or to keep, make a quorum. And Cannon follows the same ethic. He is also a very strong partisan. And um, it, it's almost as if it's not just that, you know, you are, these are Republicans. It's not just, oh, you're a Republican, so you support your party. But it's sort of, party is central to the ability of Congress to govern and for uh, the government to work. Um, and and that, so party loyalty just is just a, is just a necessary requirement if you're going to be uh, in, in government. So Cannon, for Cannon, party is central. Um, and he um, continues uh, kind of reads tradition here of governing from the speakership and in some ways it further centralizes the power of the speaker. Um, the speaker at that time is exercising the power to appoint committees. Now, Cannon shares that power um, with the minority party. He chooses to do so. Um, but other than that, he is picking all of the members of committees, certainly of the Republican Party. Um, he is choosing all the members of the Rules Committee, which Josh talked about, which is the gatekeeper for the House floor. Um, and he originally is chosen as someone that, you know, members of both parties really liked and respected as someone who would protect the power of Congress, particularly the House against the Senate. But by the late, by the, near the end of his term, 1908, 1909, um, he is seen uh, as almost more of a kind of a, too, almost a tyrant. In fact, that's the, that's the term that's used by his opponents is that he's a tyrant or a czar who's called czar canon. And um, his problem, Cannon's problem, wasn't really Democrats. It was progressives in his party. So it was a faction within the majority party that felt that the Republicans were too conservative and align themselves more closely with progressive ideas um, and with some of the policies of uh, President Teddy Roosevelt. And from Cannon's perspective, this is apostasy. And if they're going to be rebellious, then they need to be punished. And so Cannon did, in fact, punish some progressives uh, in his party for uh, defying him, putting them on really bad committees, such as the Committee on Acoustics, which is, I guess, was in charge of the sound quality in the House chamber. Um, and it all culminates in this uh, amazing scene in the House floor in early 2010 when the progressives join with Democrats and challenge uh, Cannon's authority. And there's a standoff um, between them and Democrats on the one hand and Cannon on the other um, that um, basically culminates in a change in the House rules that limits the power of the speaker. Uh, and so that's why for many historians, that's kind of the end point of this period of very powerful partisan speakers in the House of Representatives. Love it. Uh, the highest committee assignment on the We the People podcast is the Committee on Acoustics, and it's great to hear about it. And also important to hear about this conflict between stand pat Republicans and more progressive Republicans that defined the early speaker battles for much of the 20th century. Josh Chaffetz, tell us more about those battles. They encompassed speakers following canon like Champ Clark and uh, led to the longest ballot over speaker in American history in 1923 when it took four days and nine ballots 
to elect Speaker Frederick Gillett. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, Matt, I think, uh, did an amazing job taking us through the canon speakership. One, one thing I would just add is, you know, as, as Matt noted, he was frequently referred to as Tsar Canon. Um, that, you know, that, that may sound kind of prosaic to us today. We're used to talking about czars and the executive branch and all this. You have to remember, this is before the Russian Revolution, right? So they were, uh, when they called him Tsar Canon, that, that had real bite at that moment. They were talking about him as a sort of absolute monarch. And you can see this uh, throughout press accounts at, at the time. Um, uh, so you really have this sort of, you know, height of speakership power in the, in the canon speakership. And then you have this dramatic sort of confrontation uh, on the House floor, right? It's, it's, it's so dramatic that when, you know, when it looks like this sort of um, uh, alternative uh, rules package is going to, to, to be passed by a combination of progressive Democrats and progressive Republicans, both against the sort of conservative wings of their own party, um, uh, at that point, Cannon actually says, well, I've, I've lost control of my party. I, I, I invite someone to make a motion to vacate the speakership, right? Right. So he sort of uh, does that. Now, it turns out that motion fails because the Republicans don't want to turn over, you know, even the progressive Republicans don't want to turn over control of the of the House to the Democrats. Um, but it is really this this sort of uh, moment on the floor. And then the, the, what comes out of that is that rule, c- control of the Rules Committee basically gets taken away uh, from the Speaker. So the Rules Committee remains tremendously powerful, um, but the Speaker loses control over it. And instead, what you get um, uh, is the growth of a sort of strong seniority system, the growth of a system in which um, uh, uh, sort of how long you've been in the House uh, really determines sort of uh, control of committees, um, including uh, the, the Rules Committee. So that when Champ Clark becomes uh, Speaker just a couple of years later, um, so after the, the 1910 elections, the Democrats take control of the House, Champ Clark becomes Speaker, um, uh, but he... Um, uh, it's, it's sort of a much diminished speakership. Not only does he not have control of the Rules Committee, but then starting in 1911, uh, the House rules are changed to provide that um, actually membership and speakership, uh, sorry, membership and chairmanships of all of the committees would be determined by ballot of the House rather than appointed by the Speaker. Um, so you get these uh, real sort of disempowering of the speakership, and it's largely a function of the fact that both of the parties are internally divided at this moment, right? So what had you know, the strong speakership that had arisen out of this idea that, you know, you have unified parties that want to sort of um, uh, put their uh, uh, stamp on the legislative agenda in the way that Thomas Brackett Reed was um, insisting on, uh, then gets destroyed by the fact that both of these parties are, are internally divided and can't agree on exactly what stamp they want to put on the legislative agenda. And that's the context uh, for this 1923 um, uh, contest um, uh, with uh, uh, Frederick Gillette, um, uh, who's another Republican um, uh, who, uh, again, is facing uh, a bunch of progressive Republicans uh, in his own party. He's a conservative Republican. And and essentially, he has to make all of these concessions, sort of further weakening the speakership um, uh, in, in order to uh, actually win the speakership election, right? So there are interesting sort of echoes, I think, in the Gillette election of the of the McCarthy election that we just went through, where essentially the only way he could win power was by appeasing a significant faction within his own party. Um, and, and what it meant to appease them was not just policy concessions, but indeed uh, was concessions that, that limited the power of the speakership and increased the power that that faction would be able to wield in internal deliberations. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Matthew Green, tell us more about the outcomes of the contested election of 1923. Frederick Gillette was supported by Nicholas Longworth, the Republican who joined progressives in championing a democratization of House rules, but Longworth himself became Speaker in 1925 and punished members who'd broken with their 
party and 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 uh, sort of reined in the progressive uh, insurgency. Uh, so tell us about uh, Longworth's speakership as well. Certainly. So one way to think about this period from Joe Cannon uh, and um, this revolt on the House floor and then the Republicans losing the House in 1910 until about the early mid-1930s is the House is kind of struggling to figure out exactly uh, where power should be and where decisions should be made. So if it's not going to be entirely with one person, the speaker, um, who would have that authority? Um, so after uh, Cannon, for example, uh, the Democrats under Speaker Champ Clark experimented with the, the binding caucus, which was this idea that the party would meet as a group, come up with decisions, and if two-thirds agreed on that decision, everyone would vote on that bill. They didn't use it that often, and it, as you can imagine, it didn't work all that well. It's hard to get everybody to agree on, on things uh, in, in political parties in the U.S., certainly. Um, but that was sort of an experiment there. And also, but that wasn't the only thing. So the idea also is, well, maybe the majority leader would have some authority. Um, or maybe it would be, um, you know, committees that are chosen, um, you know, by the party or by leaders. And so in theory, a committee's making the decision, but really um, they're 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 there because the leader chose them, so they're going to agree with the leader. So the House is kind of experimenting with this, and things are moving. It's, it's a somewhat fluid period. So the Gillette election, this contested election in 1923, you know, Gillette is elected when he agrees that the House can change its rules, and they do change their rules. Uh, for example, making it easier to issue what's called a discharge petition. So you, if a bill is blocked in a committee, uh, a number of members can file a petition to force it out of the committee and bring it to the floor. Um, and so there are these reforms that are adopted so that Gillette can get elected. But what happens two years later in the 1924 elections is the Republicans do very, very well. The party is much bigger, and all of a sudden these progressives are no longer the pivotal block that they had been before. And uh, Gillette uh, leaves the House Longworth is the Republican nominee for speaker, and he basically tells the progressives, um, you're outnumbered now. And so now we're going to change the rules back uh, so that you don't have as much power as you did before. And if you don't agree and you won't go along, you'll be punished. Uh, and Longworth made good on his threat uh, and uh, changed the rules, and, and a number of these progressives uh, were punished in various ways. But Longworth didn't centralize power either entirely. Now, he was a very charismatic individual, very persuasive, but he did not have the power that Joe Cannon had. So much of what he had to do is through more informal means or working with other members to get things done. Um, he was still a very important speaker uh, and a very popular one with Republicans and even uh, Democrats. But this is still part of this period where it's a little uncertain exactly what role the speaker plays in the legislative process if the, if the speaker isn't going to be the central czar-like figure that Joe Cannon turned out to be. Josh, uh, Matthew mentioned that it wasn't until the 1930s that things began to stabilize. We have a bunch of New Deal-era speakers, including John Nance Garner, who became FDR's vice president, of course, culminating in the long-serving Sam Rayburn, who took office in 1940. So take us up through the speakership of Rayburn. Sure. So as you know, as, as you noted, right, the um, 1940s, you know, into the 1950s are uh, a period of uh, democratic dominance of the, um, uh, you know, of, of the national government, right? So you have um, uh, FDR winning uh, election to the presidency four times, followed by uh, Truman, his, his last vice president. Um, uh, and you have uh, sort of large and growing uh, for much of that time, Democratic uh, majorities in both chambers of Congress. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of what's happening in that period is trying to 
um, uh, especially at the beginning part of that period, is trying to push New Deal policies um, uh, through uh, through Congress. And then sort of uh, the middle and later half of that period, a lot, there, there's a sort of uh, turn to uh, foreign policy with, of course, World War II um, uh, and then uh, the beginning of the Cold War. Um, so there are, there's a tremendous amount of sort of uh, policy ferment, but there's also... Um, uh, you know, really, in some sense, one-party governance for for a significant chunk of that time. Um, at the same time, you have the the rise of uh, of, of sort of long-serving Southern Democrats, right? So this is a moment where um, seniority is important, uh, and the the uh, Southern Democrats, uh, you know, the the Democrats have a sort of lock on on uh, most of the Southern seats uh, um, uh, in both houses of Congress because. Um, uh, you know, so the legacy of the Civil War, right? The Republicans are the um, are the party of union in the Civil War, um, and so that has a long tail with with uh, Southern whites um, uh, identifying with the Democratic Party and Southern blacks being almost entirely disenfranchised by by Jim Crow uh, and white supremacist terrorism during this period. And so you have these long, increasingly long serving um, uh, Southern Democrats who come to chair um, uh, sort of most of the most important committees, and that really shapes. Um, a lot of American uh, national policy in mid-century. It shapes uh, the way the New Deal looks, right? So as a lot of scholars have pointed out in recent years, uh, the New Deal uh, programs that aim to benefit the working class are really very much skewed towards the white working class. Um, uh, and then in the aftermath uh, of, um, uh, of World War II, um, uh, the, the sort of uh, power of Southern Democrats means that it's uh, it takes a long time before uh, any significant progress is made on civil rights or voting rights legislation. Um, and during this time as well, right, we have some very powerful um, uh, speakers uh, from uh, who who are um, uh, sort of identified uh, with the, the 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 Southern Democratic Party, right? Uh, and that includes, uh, of course, uh, Sam Ray- Sam Rayburn of Texas, who's a um, uh, who, who's a powerful speaker, but he's also a speaker who sort of comes out of this. Um, uh, real rise of Southern Democrats as a as a major power block in the in the House of Representatives. Matthew Green, in your book, the Speaker of the House, you have an entire chapter on the speakership of Sam Rayburn uh, and John McCormack. Tell us about why those were significant. Well, part of it, you know, as, as Josh was talking about, kind of where party politics were at this time. Um, you did have uh, you know you had one dominant party, the Democratic Party, certainly in Congress as well as. Uh, in the presidency, um, with a couple of exceptions. And so with that one-party dominance, um, part of that is, of course, if you pick a leader, um, you don't. the leader doesn't have to worry about um, losing their position because their party loses power. So uh, Rayburn, who's chosen, as she said, in 1940, um, is speaker almost entirely uh, until he passes away in uh, 1961, I believe, uh, with a couple of small exceptions. Republicans would control the House for two-year periods. Uh, and so part of what made him an important speaker was just that he lasted as long as he did, and that was partly because Democrats were such a dominant party. He also had, um, he was from the South, which was really the dominant wing of the Democratic Party at the time, Um, and so he had that Southern bloc that was supporting him. He also, though, was a very skilled leader. He was very, you know, very much a good fit for the kind of politics of the House at that time. He had been Speaker in the State House in Texas before he was Speaker of the House, so he already kind of understood what it required to be a legislative leader. Um, But he also um, kind of understood that a part of um, this new establishment that we had in the House at the time was um, a period in which, uh, as Josh mentioned, you have these Southerners who are chairing committees. 
And with that came this uh, idea that, that seniority was how you chose committee chairs, which of course benefited the South because Southerners in the South tend to get reelected they never have to worry about losing to a Republican. Um, but as a practical matter, that meant that chairs also became powerful because they could develop these fiefdoms, chairing committees for year after year after year. And so Rayburn was important in part because he didn't try to act like a Joe Cannon. He knew that these chairs were powerful. He knew that his authority rested on the support of Southerners. And so a lot of uh, the power was devolved from the speakership to committees. Um, but, but at the same time, Rayburn had this had a tremendous inf uh, informal skills, an ability to work with Southerners, to negotiate with them. Um, so this bargaining model was one that, that Rayburn used, which allowed him to stay in power, but also allowed him to exercise some influence, despite having these powerful committee barons who could often be very independent-minded. Um, and so uh, you know, those are some of the things that, that made Rayburn very important. Now, one thing I should note, you know, part of that power that he had rested not just on Southern committee chairs, uh, be, you, know, de you know, deferring to them, but also uh, keeping civil rights off the agenda. Uh, Rayburn was not as uh, anti-civil rights as some of other Southerners were, um, but he uh, understood that if you were pushing for civil rights in the South uh, for African-Americans uh, in the House of Representatives, um, there would be a tremendous blowback uh, from his own party. And so one of the unfortunate legacies of that period is the dominance of the South and Southern Democrats meant that um, there was really no, virtually no action on civil rights legislation for most of his speakership. Well, we now come to what, Matthew Green, you call in your book the reform era of the modern speakership. It includes Carl Albert, who takes office in 1971 and goes through the speakership of Thomas Foley, uh, which ends in 1995. Uh, Josh Chaffetz, tell us about these reform-era speakers. Sure. So Albert um, perhaps isn't as well known as some of the other uh, speakers, but you know, really does preside over uh, an important part of the development of the House. So, um, you know, starting in the 1950s, actually, there's a um, a group of Democrats, uh, a group of sort of uh, moderate, mostly Northern and Western Democrats uh, in the House who form what's, uh, what they call the Democratic Study Group, um, and part of what they're trying to do. Uh, is actually chip away at the power of the Southern Democrats, um, uh, chip away at the power of these uh, Democratic chairs, in particular because um, uh, those chairs had been um, uh, keeping legislation that they cared about, including in some cases civil rights legislation, off the floor. So we're talking about uh, Southern Democratic legislators like um, Howard Judge Smith, who was the longtime chair of the Rules Committee from Virginia and was a virulent racist, um, uh, and really played a significant role in keeping civil rights legislation off the floor. So in the 50s, you have some other Democrats starting to organize against that. And then it's really in the 70s. So Carl Albert becomes speaker in 1971, serves as speaker until 1977. And it's really at, sort of at that moment when some of this begins to come to fruition, right? So some of these uh, sort of young guns in the late 50s are now, uh, now have some seniority in the, in the 1970s themselves. In addition, um, uh, you have the, the reaction against um, uh, not only the, the Vietnam War, um, but also against Watergate. And then uh, as a result of the 1974 elections, you have the Watergate babies, all of these new um, uh, Democrats who come into Congress uh, in, uh, beginning in 1975, um, who were elected uh, sort of on the strength of uh, uh, sort of popular opposition to, to Nixon. And so... Carl Albert is is the speaker during this period, and he's the one who sort of uh, is is uh, 
you know, either gifted or challenged, depending on how you want to think of it, with a sort of, a, you know, a, a Democratic caucus that looks different than it had previously looked. That is to say, one in which Southern Democrats are less powerful than they had been. Um, uh, and so he begins, and one way that that uh, uh, sort of uh, takes form is that um, the, the, the sort of opposition to these old Southern Democrats um, uh, leads to demands for more, a little bit more centralization of power, not to the extent that we saw with you know someone like Reed or Cannon, but nevertheless, um, uh, the idea is well, if the committee uh, uh, chairs are too powerful, if the committee chairs are able to keep things off the floor, even when uh, you know a significant majority of the Democratic caucus wants them to come to the floor, um, then what we need to do is disempower the committee chairs. That power's got to go somewhere. Uh, and so um, uh, it leads to a period in which you start to see a little bit more centralization uh, of power again. And this is the period in which the speakership, for example, regains control over the Rules Committee. Um, uh, right. So we talked about the fact that part of the revolt against Speaker Cannon was that he lost the power to appoint the Rules Committee, lost the power to appoint the chair of the Rules Committee. Um, uh, at this moment, that power goes back to the speakership. Right. Um, uh, and so the, the idea is, well, we, um, uh, you have enough Democrats saying we don't want someone like Judge Smith controlling the Rules Committee anymore. We want someone who represents the sort of midpoint of the Democratic caucus. Um, uh, and so that's, um, I think, what Matt means by talking about this as a sort of period of reform uh, is that it's an attempt to sort of sw uh, swing the pendulum a little bit back. Um, sort of away from this decentralized Southern Democrat-controlled chamber towards um, um, something more of a, of a sort of balance between chamber leadership on the one hand and committee leadership on the other. Well, we now come to the speakership of Newt Gingrich. And in your new book, Matthew Green, which is called Newt Gingrich, The Rise and Fall of a Party Entrepreneur, you argue that uh, Gingrich exemplifies a particular type of elected representatives you call a party entrepreneur, unlike the typical member of Congress who fixates on cultivating support with his, in his own district or state to get reelected, you argue party entrepreneurs dedicate their scarce resources to strategically create or exploit opportunities that will assist their political party. Tell us about Newt Gingrich and his influence on the speakership. Gingrich had a significant influence on the speakership. In some ways, it can be overstated because some of the things he did as speaker were building on what, these developments that Josh had talked about previously, giving more power to the speaker, giving more power to the majority party. Um, but what uh, really motivated Newt Gingrich from the time he was first elected to the House in 1978 was this frustration that the Republicans were a minority party. So the Republicans had last been a majority in the House of Representatives in 1954. And from that point on, the Democrats had the majority in the House. Um, they seemed to have a lock. Um, they were able to take advantage of, as Josh mentioned, this sort of long legacy of the Civil War where Southerners were voting Democrat, even as the party was becoming more liberal. Um, along with the northern wing of the Democratic Party. And Republicans just couldn't seem to crack that, that coalition. Um, so from Gingrich's perspective, that was the most important thing. That really mattered more than almost anything else. And so that's why we call him the, an entrepreneur, because he is not focusing most of his time on the district. He's not focusing most of his time on legislating. He's focusing on party strategy. He's focusing on electioneering. He's trying to figure out how do you get and create a Republican majority? Now, in the process of doing that, uh, over that 20-year period while he's in the minority, uh, he is either initiating or supporting reforms that are centralizing power in the Republican Party in the House. Um, so things like giving the minority leader a say over who is on the Rules Committee on the Republican side. Um, 
pursuing legis- uh, policy or, or uh, rules changes in the party that punish members who defy what the party wants. Um, so in other words, um, increasing the costs associated with um, voting with Democrats. And the idea is not only to create more party discipline, but to create a party brand. So the Republicans are fundamentally different than Democrats. And from Gingrich's perspective, whenever a Republican, a moderate Republican votes with a Democrat, that weakens the reputation of the party and its brand. So we fast forward to the 1994 elections. Republicans win control of the House for the first time in 40 years. And a lot of Republicans see Gingrich as responsible because of all of these things he's been doing uh, that we also outline in the book to bring about a Republican majority. Now, it's not really clear that he is all that responsible. Um, if anything, it's Bill Clinton being unpopular and the South realigning itself finally towards the more conservative Republican Party. But the point is that Gingrich has been chosen, he's seen as being responsible and given the credit, and so he's the natural choice to be Speaker of the House of Representatives, plus the existing minority leader or Republican leader, Bob Michael, had chosen to retire. Um, So for the first... You know, so the first few months of Gingrich's speakership is really remarkable. Um, I can go into great detail, but in a nutshell, the House passes a series of bills in 100 days. It's an unprecedented speed of passing legislation. The House hadn't seen this since the New Deal. Um, and, and also the House ch- rules change, or Gingrich and his allies change the rules of the House to further empower the Speaker, to further centralize power in the Speakership. Um, and so in other words, the House is moving more towards this canon model uh, of governance. Uh, and so, um, you know, for, for this first period of the Gingrich speakership, there's just this tremendous energy and a sense that uh, really power in national government rests with the House of Representatives, not the White House, not the Senate, but it's the House. And it's under Gingrich's leadership where this is happening. Well, we now come to the post-Gingrich era. There are a series of Republican speakers, including John Dennis Hastert and John Boehner, and Paul Ryan, and most recently Kevin McCarthy, and one Democratic speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who first took office in 2007, served until the beginning of 2011, and then took the speakership again in 2019. Josh Chaffetz, how would you characterize this post-Gingrich era, and what important constitutional changes in the role of the speaker, if any, took place. Yeah, so it's a period in which, uh, you know, we're, we're still to a large extent living in Newt Gingrich's world uh, as far as the way that the House operates, right? It's still a period in which you have um, a tremendous amount of power in the House concentrated in the speakership and, and the, the majority leadership. Um, and you see that sort of through... Um, uh, you know, through all basically all of those speakers that you've just mentioned, although with some interesting caveats, right? So, you know, Hastert, um, uh, you know, in addition to being uh, now known as a felon, um, I think the main thing that he was known for during his his speakership uh, was what has come to be called the Hastert rule, um, right? Which is this idea that he wouldn't allow anything to come to the floor uh, unless it had a majority, unless it was supported by a majority of the Republican caucus, right? That is to say, um, uh, unless a majority of the majority party supports it, uh, it won't come to the floor. And of course, he can use his control over the Rules Committee to, in, to determine what does or does not come to the floor. Now, the Hastert rule is, you know, uh, uh, to borrow from Pirates of the Caribbean, more like guidelines than rules, really. Um, uh, uh, that is to say, it's, it's, it's uh, not infrequently honored in the breach, but it does really um, uh, sort of point to a, a sort of uh, centralization of power in the leadership of the party and to a real sort of running of the House along uh, uh, very clearly majoritarian party-dominated lines. Um, 
right? So that, um, uh, you know, even if something would have a cross-partisan majority, if it doesn't have a majority of the uh, of the party that's in power, it's never going to get a vote, at least in those moments when the Hastert rule is being um, uh, adhered to. The other thing that we see during this period um, uh, as well as sort of this continuation of, of centralized power um, is uh, sort of something beginning to point in the other direction, at least when it comes to the Republican Party, which is uh, a sort of um, uh, uh, growing fracture within the Republican Party. And it's called sort of different things at different points, right? So, um, you know, uh, during the uh, um, uh, uh, Obama presidency, which is uh, largely the, the, the sort of Boehner speakership, um, uh, once uh, after 2011, um, uh, this is uh, what we might call sort of the Tea Party Republicans versus the mainstream Republicans. Later, we might call it the Freedom Caucus Republicans versus mainstream Republicans or the Trump Republicans versus other Republicans. Um, but it's a, it's a group, uh, you know, and a shifting group, but a group of uh, Republicans who are uh, willing to buck the leadership of their party in the House. Um, and they succeed in deposing uh, uh, you know, they've, they've succeeded in deposing the two most recent speakers, right? They, they, they deposed John Boehner, um, uh, and then they, they basically deposed Paul Ryan. I mean, Ryan retired at the end of a, a Congress, but um, uh, was, was sort of facing uh, revolts uh, and, and uh, almost inability to manage his own party. Uh, and then we saw the same thing with McCarthy, uh, right? The, the, you know, taking uh, 15 ballots to get elected, having to give over tons of concessions. One of those concessions is, is loosening the rules about um, uh, the motion to vacate the chair. It would be shocking if we didn't see motions to vacate the chair popping up with, uh, you know, fairly frequently um, uh, in this Congress, whether or not they actually uh, succeed. Um, so there, there, there seems to be when Republicans control the majority, uh, something of a weakening uh, of, of the speakership, of party leadership, um, uh, especially when their margin is very thin. On the other side of the aisle, Pelosi, uh, who's, who's been the only Democratic speaker of the 21st century, um, has managed to uh, maintain a really strong central leadership, um, even when she had very, very small majorities, as she did in the um, recently ended 117th Congress. Um, uh, she has managed to keep her, her caucus united, keep, her, keep it united behind a uh, sort of majority uh, leadership set agenda. Um, uh, and sort of hasn't faced that kind of revolt in any serious way. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, if you know, Hakeem Jeffries becomes speaker at some point in the future, um, uh, if he's able to wield that same kind of control. Because if he is, it will suggest that the, the real difference here is between the two parties, which is certainly plausible. It's also plausible that Pelosi is just a, a sort of a, a uniquely skilled uh, uh, coalition builder and coalition maintainer, and that's why she was able to keep her, her party uh, in line. Um, I suspect it's probably some combination of those two things, but um, uh, there, there's an interesting sort of disconnect right now between the two parties in terms of how much they line up behind their leadership. Matthew Green, how would you characterize this important post-Gingrich period and uh, what changes in the rules and norms of the House created a increase in partisanship and a decrease in compromise. Well, Josh has summarized very well this environment we've been in post-Gingrich, where you have uh, a continued centralization of power within leadership in both parties, but at the same time, this countervailing force of factions within the parties, particularly the Republican Party. Um, I think that um, one of the uh, kind of important differences between uh, Democrats and Republicans in this period, well, there's a couple, and one of them is, I think, uh, leadership. Um, you know, John Boehner, who, as Josh mentioned, left under pressure from the, uh, this conservative group called the Freedom Caucus, uh, I've written, I've described him as a, a, um, a Rayburn speaker in a Gingrich house. 
his style of leadership just didn't really jibe with what the party wanted. His party wants, they want uh, political action, they want legislating, they want conservative legislating, they don't want to compromise with Democrats. And Boehner's instinct was to compromise, was to make deals. And it just, just did not really uh, jibe. Um, so part of it is, you know, how well are these leaders, how well do they fit with what their party wants, what they expect in terms of strategy and in terms of policy? Pelosi is a good contrast, and I think that uh, a lot of her success has to do with her ability to manage a party. Being a good speaker means party management. Gingrich was not very good at that as speaker. He was a good, he was a thinker, he had big ideas, but dealing with factions, dealing with um, you know, differences of opinion within your party, it's hard to do. Um, Pelosi is a wheeler dealer. She is very, very good at that. And so when she has faced resistance in her party, whether it's the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, whatever, the gang of four, these four, you know, difficult Democrats, or when she was running for leader in 2018, and, and she had enough Democrats who opposed her for speaker, she wasn't going to win. She knew how to bargain and how to get their votes. Um, Republican leaders just haven't been as good at that. I think one of the reasons we've seen Kevin McCarthy take 15 ballots as Josh mentioned, to be speaker is um, he doesn't seem to have the skill set to know how to not so much make deals, but to make deals in a timely fashion so that they get dealt with before it comes to the floor and everyone's paying attention to how divided your party is. Um, but I think the bigger picture here is that the House right now is in a really interesting, uh, and the speakership is in a very interesting moment where po power is very much centralized and lawmakers in a way like that because it means that things get done. But at the same time, many of them feel disempowered, that they don't have a say. And some of these rebels on the left in the Democratic Party and in the right in the Republican Party, including members of the Freedom Caucus, fall into that latter group. And they say, you know, we want to say and we want to change in how things are done so that we can influence outcomes. So I think the next two years are going to be a very interesting one with McCarthy kind of like in Gillette's position, he's made these deals with lawmakers in his, on, the, on his right flank that empower them. And that might mean the agenda changes. It might mean that bills come to the floor that Republicans don't like. It might mean that conservative Freedom Caucus members make deals with Democrats in some cases to bring uh, to change the rules so everyone can offer amendments to bills that normally you can't offer amendments to. So I think it's going to be a very interesting period and a possibly a kind of transition even uh, from a centralized model of the speakership to one where power is distributed more widely. Well, it's time for a summation of this superb discussion. What a great way of learning about the history of America and the Constitution through this constitutional history of the House. And uh, Josh Chaffetz, I, I'm going to ask you to do it, pull back, and tell we the people listeners what the most important constitutional and historical changes in the role of the Speaker were from the time of the founding to today. Well, big question. Um, so I, I think the you know I, for me the big takeaway is is that like so many other sort of patterns of American political life, um, the speakership and the House of Representatives in general goes in cycles and epicycles. You have um, a, a sort of uh, a decentralized house that that then over time you have pressures uh, on it to to sort of get its business done that lead to it becoming more centralized. At some point, it becomes so centralized that that the backbenchers don't like it, and so they revolt, and then it becomes decentralized again. Um, at some point, that becomes problematic, and so and so you start to centralize again. Um, and I think what Matt was suggesting just now is is perfect. Sounds sounds completely plausible to me that we may be on the cusp of a sort of new decentralization. Um, as well, right? So that that there isn't a sort of um, uh, you know stable 
um, uh, equilibrium here, but rather it, it, um, uh, it's a sort of slow swinging back and forth. Um, uh, and so sometimes you have more powerful speakers. Sometimes the speakers become too powerful. Then you then they get uh, uh, deposed in one way or another. Um, uh, and then you have sort of power more dispersed. The 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 you know how concentrated or how dispersed power is uh, sort of serves different ends, leads to different outcomes, um, uh, and uh, so is hugely consequential. Um, but it's not clear that there's a sort of right answer or that there is a, a sort of something that, you know, an end point that we're groping our way towards. But like so many processes of government, it's, it's uh, messy and contentious um, uh, and, and sort of irreducibly and inevitably so. Thank you so much, Matthew Green and Josh Chaffetz, for a rich, rigorous, learned, surprising, and, and really illuminating uh, constitutional history of the role of the speaker of the House. I've learned a huge amount, and I know we, the people listeners, have as well. Matthew, Josh, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Lana Ulrich and Bill Pollack. It was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Liam Kerr, Emily Campbell, Sophia Gardell, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple. Recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose constitutional and historical illumination and debate. It's so great to bring these nonpartisan discussions to you. I learned so much, and I hope that you are learning and enjoying them as well. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the dedication to learning of people like you from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission, friends, by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.